Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blastingame, and I am your host today. We have Daniel Krunsky, aka Russian Danny, who was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and immigrated to LA, Los Angeles, City of Angels, California, when he was a wee young lad. He hit the ground running and found himself immersed in the L.A. culture of crime, graffiti, and drugs. Sounds like a party. After several close calls with death and bouts in the notorious L.A. County Jail, Russian Danny turned the page and started a new chapter in his life. He now produces and hosts a successful podcast called It's All Bad and is pursuing a career in acting and filmmaking. He also volunteers with several organizations that focus on giving back to the streets he grew up in. Woo! Russian Danny. What a treat you guys are in for. This guy is hilarious. And he's just such a character uh, and, and absolutely embodies the diversity and amazingness that is in the program that we get to come in contact with, you know, people who would normally never meet or, or, um, you know, just have a different life than we do. It doesn't matter where you come from. We all end up in this same place together, uh, and that is recovery. So please enjoy my new friend, Russian Danny. Episode 74. Let's do this. Russian Danny, thank you so much for being here. Oh man, I'm so glad to be here with you. It's so awesome. So for starters, you have a rad podcast that gets to talk about all the war stories and all that. So much fun. It's all bad. How did that start? So my buddy Keith Wager has been, I mean, we've always just talked about how like we have some of the best stories, you know, at the end of the day and we hear some of the best stuff and he's always been like, man, we got to have like some way to get these stories out into the world, you know, cause we hear it and, you know, I hear it in meetings all the time and we would hear, think about how great, you know, the stuff we would all hear is. And then he was always like, we got to figure out a way how to get it out there. And he's like, we should start a podcast. And we kind of had this conversation for maybe about a year and finally, he was like, dude, we should just do one ourselves. And we started doing it. And now, I think this Friday, we're recording our 50th episode. That is so awesome. Yeah. And is every episode a guest episode? Every episode. Well, every episode's a guest episode. And then we did like a three-part mini-series where it was okay. just like us telling our stories. Okay. Okay. And uh, what's the reaction been like? People really dig it. I mean, it's weird, you know, because like for us, it's we just started doing it because we just love telling stories and we love hearing people's stories and we've just been having a lot of fun doing it, you know? And yeah, it's it's just cool. It's just like a cool experience, you know, and we've had people reach out. We The 50th episode, we're having people call in uh, from all over that are like, I have stories too. So now that we finally have been recording from the comfort of our own homes and we've gotten the technology dialed in, we're doing like a, uh, we're doing an episode. We're going to have five people call in and we're just kind of going to go through and hear some of their stories. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. 
I love it. I know it's true. I It's part of what I wanted to get like a little bit different on this podcast, but like part of what I wanted to get through to other people was like, I hear just incredible stories from top to bottom, like incredibly crazy, incredibly bad, <laughs> incredibly good, you know, just like miraculous, like all these stories and other people don't have that experience. And I, I just, you know, we, we have this abundance and recovery of amazing stories. Some of the best stories, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's a, and the coolest thing is it's like, we have these war stories, you know, and we tell them and it's like, you know, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're tragic. We've had some really, really dark stories on there. But at the end of the day, it's just a miracle that we're alive to tell these stories. That something got us here to where we're able to share this and look back and laugh at it. You know, it's like there's a lot of stuff that I had that when I came in to recovery that I had a lot of shame and guilt attached to, you know, where I was like, I can't believe I did that. And I can't believe that happened. And that's like one of the most beautiful things in my recovery is like, you know, I have people that I've sponsored that are like, I was outside and four in the morning, like talking to a telephone pole and like, you know, (laughs) thinking that every single license plate was a, was a, like, was a message that was like coded for me. And I was like, and I'm like, dude, I get it. Like, I totally get that. You know, like there's nothing like that's not that weird to me at all. No, not that weird. And (laughs) also kind of awesome. Yeah. You know, like, like there's something kind of, like when people, I always laugh when people are like at the first, they're super ashamed. And then eventually we're like, dude, that's an awesome story. Like you, you thought all the, the, uh, you thought you were such a big deal that every car that drove by had a message. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. So you were born in the Soviet union. I was, yes. Former Soviet union Union. in Uh Kiev. Uh Uh-huh. I was born in Kiev, 1985, uh, right before, to two great, you know, my parents are great. My grandpa was a pretty famous uh, Ukrainian writer. So like we, we had it good, you know, like we had like a pretty cool condo and we had like a little dacha, which is like a vacation home, you know, and well, I mean, we'd still, I remember like some of my earliest memories was like, I remember going with my grandma and waiting, like her being like, come on and like putting me in line at a store and being like, you stay here. And then I'm going to go like, you stay in line waiting for meats or bread or whatever. And I'm going to go over here to get milk for us across the street, you know, and just like leaving me there alone to go, which is kind of crazy that like full circle, like I'm standing in line. I know, right? Quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. And then, so actually in 1986, right. It was Chernobyl. My, my family was in, I, I was, my mom was pregnant with me. And I, we were living in Milan. And so, yeah, so they had, so the radiation came down and the cloud came over Europe and they drove down to Southern Italy. But you, where were you? I was in Kiev when it started. And at first the government kind of tried to like, I guess, deny it. And they were like, no, we're fine. We don't have to worry about it. And then once like the official word got out that like the radiation was being blown into Kiev, cause we were really close. Like we were, I don't know off the top of my head exactly, but it was like really, you know, Really, close really enough. close. Yeah, close enough. And uh, my grandma took me and we went to go stay with family in Estonia, in Tallinn, for I believe like a year uh, until, after it, uh, until after it passed, which was like also weird for me because then I came back and like, I, you know, my grandma was like a mother to me because I spent my first like 
year and a half with her for most of the time. And then I came back and it's like, hey, this is your mom. And I'm like, wait, what? I thought this was my mom, you know? So your mom stayed in Kiev? My mom stayed, yeah. And she, she was going to school at the time and working and my mom and dad stayed there. Did they get sick? No. Wow. No. <laughs> Tough as nails, man. Oh, Tough yeah. as nails. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you and then how was that reintegration with mom? Like, like who is this lady? What what's happening here? I mean, kind of. It was weird because I remember. Uh, well, I mean, I don't remember this, but they all tell me that I came back and I would call. So my grandma's name is Elizabeth, and I would call her Lisa, and then I would call my mom, who's Elena, Mama Lena. So I would call Mama Lena and Mama Lisa. So I was like, I guess I have two moms. You know, yeah. it was kind of weird. <laughs> you were very progressive. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, okay. So, and you, when did you have your first drink? So my grandpa was, you know, like I said, he was like a pretty well-known Ukrainian writer and we lived in this house. uh, It was like called the house of the arts. It was like this big condo and it was built, I guess the year before I was born. And um, he would sit, he'd had a study and he would sit in there and he would write and everybody would tell me, do not go near your grandpa because he's a very angry man. He's always in there busy and he's writing. And every once in a while he would come out and he would be like, Hey, come on, we're going to build a fort, you know? And like, I never saw that side of him, you know? And I'd be like, all right, cool. And I, and I always remember walking into that study and always seeing this like beautiful crystal bottle sitting on his desk and he would pour you know, like, and like, I I remember the light shining through the window and hitting it and like the rainbow, like how it was kind of like spread in like a rainbow light. And he would, um, and I was just so intrigued by it. I was just so amazed. And I was like, wow, what is that? And uh, I asked him one day, I was like, grandpa, what is in the bottle? He goes, boy, it's my happy juice, you know? And I go, happy juice. What is happy juice? You know? And, uh, and I, and I, I don't remember how much he poured me, you know, uh, uh, I don't remember if it was like a shot or a glass or whatever, you know, and I had that first drink with him. And I wish I could tell you that like, you know, like that was when I had that big moment and I had arrived and I remember the warmth that took over. Yeah, right, me. right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Totally. And like all my five-year-old problems had went away right in that moment, you know. <laughs> I can't tell you that, but I remember that like this was a man that was like really respected by many and looked up to and I looked up to him and he had something called happy juice and like still uh, to this day, win win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sign me up. <laughs> yeah. yeah so who's gonna who's first. gonna say no to happy juice, yeah. particularly <laughs> yeah. a five year old. Yeah. Frankly, no one. So you had the happy juice. Do you, you don't you don't remember what that was like or what like did you do it again or what what happened after the happy juice was that a a regular thing no it wasn't you know it wasn't too much of a regular thing a little bit shortly after that you know my uh my grandpa passed away from uh like from health complications due to drinking too much happy juice i guess you could say you know not so happy after all you know and uh and we like we hopped on a flight like we you know we packed we sold the the our condo and we like got everything we owned and we got onto a flight and we moved to America the land of the free you know like uh, uh my grandpa was like very traditional soviet man and he was like no we we're going to stay here until you know and ride it out it's going to get better here and uh, my uncle had moved here in the 80s to like pursue uh, his career as being a composer, and he got us sponsored, so we moved here uh, to West Hollywood with all the other Russians. And 
I mean, I guess there was like little bits of, you know, my, like my mom had me when she was 20. So she would always like, she felt like she, I remember like she would always take me with her to her friend's houses to like, so she could like, you know, relive, like live out her, the years that she missed, like raising a son, you know, and, uh, and me and what, whatever friends like her, uh, her, the fr- her friends' kids, we would always like when they would be in the other room. I remember we'd go and like go into the ashtray and like smoke their like leftover cigarettes. And I remember like drinking like whatever leftover stuff was in those the glasses that they left on the table, you know. And we thought we were like so cool and sneaky and really just trying to be like our parents, you know. Yeah, right, right. So like before you got to America, what were you told about America? I mean, I just remember being told that like, it's a place where you can do whatever you want to do, where it was like, the you know, the land of the free. And it was like, you can go and follow your dreams and go to school for whatever you want to go to school for and do really just whatever, you know, whatever you want to do in life, which sounded really cool to me, you know? Like, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember teachers like, you know, like it was, I mean, like schools in, and I, I only went to like preschool there, you know, I moved here when I was seven, but I remember like getting hit with the rule stick on my fingers, you know, and like, like coming home and, and then my parents being like, well, what did you do in school? Like, why, why did you do something that, that, that warrants that, you know, that was just like the norm, you know? And, uh, I remember when we were, uh, before we moved here, I think we had to go to like, to Moscow to get our, to get like either our visas or to get whatever we needed to do, you know, our passports, whatever, what, like, I don't, you know, like per se remember exactly what we did there, but I remember going to Moscow and going to, there was a McDonald's at the train station and my dad took me to the McDonald's and I had a happy meal there. And I remember eating that, like whatever, you know, like whatever cheeseburger and the, ice cream sundae and fries and getting the little toy and being like, oh my God, this is the greatest food I've ever eaten. And I'm going to eat this every single day until the day that I die. You know, like I could not wait to get here after having that little happy meal. Oh God. Oh, thank you, McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Land of the free. Yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. Okay. And so you got here in... 92. 92, yeah. So you were here for Northridge earthquake? I was here for Northridge, yeah. I guess we moved here right after the riots because we came here in August of 92. So I just missed that. Land of the yeah. real free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, uh, yeah. And I, right away it was weird because I started like going, I got like right as we landed, I think like, you know, a week later, school began. So like I got thrown into school and it was weird for me because I didn't speak a word of the language. Not one word of English. Not you one just, word of English. You know? How does that work? People always say that. I, I, didn't, I didn't speak one word of the language and they end up being thrown in school. Like, how does that even work? I mean, it's so crazy. You know, looking back at it, it's so, I, I mean, I learned pretty quickly, you know, like I don't have an accent anymore. I'm not sitting here with you like, hello, I'm very glad to be on your podcast today, you know, like. So, but I got thrown into school. One of my earliest memories, you know, and uh, and I would always like share this, you know, with like my sponsees and whatever, where like maybe one of my first resentments was uh, I got to class and there was one other Russian kid in my class and I really had to use the bathroom. So I remember asking him like, hey, how do I say I have to use the bathroom? And he, you know, went and like whispered something in my ear and I raised my hand. And this is maybe like day two or three of me being there. And I raise my hand, the teacher calls on me, and I say, F*** you, bitch, to the teacher. Because that's what he told me to say. 
you know, and now it's like four o'clock school got out at two. I don't know why I'm now sitting in another room where it only has like two kids in it, which is being detention, you know, and like, I'm pretty sure I peed my pants, you know, I don't remember. And I mean, I carried that was like one of those things that I like that I carried with me, you know, where I was like, I can't believe he did that to me, you know, and that made that made me be my comrade. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But what's funny is like, I, you know, I shared that I shared that uh, I spoke on a panel, maybe like a year and a half, a year, a year and a half ago. And I and like, you know, a guy that I really look up to spoke on the panel with me, you know, he's got like 26 years. And, uh, and I told a story and, and he, um, and the guy that told me to say that, you know, he like added me on Instagram, like maybe oh, a no. few years ago or tried to. And I saw in his profile that it said like, sober vegan crossfit and i was like oh nope i'm gonna block you like i'm blocking i want to have nothing to do with you and i told that story you know and my friend was like man like for a kid that fool got you really good like that's really funny you know i mean yeah i mean and and for years i I carried it with me as like how could he do that to me that's so mean which it is you know it is mean it is but mean. it like you know my friend yeah but also funny like but i'd never seen the humor in it and then Shortly after that, I was like, you know what? He's right. Like, and I've and I'm still carrying, and I've done the work around this resentment, but I'm still carrying it with me. If I'm still like being like, how could he do this to me? You know, and I ended up adding that dude on Facebook, and like, you know, he's got nine years sober. He's like killing it, you know, and he's like one of the nicest guys, you know. So he was just I, a he was just a dickhead kid. He was just a dickhead kid. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But like the shame that gets experienced in a situation like that, I can completely understand you're already, you're already like heightened awareness experience. Like you have to go to the bathroom. You know, the, the, the nice thing would have been for him to say, you bitch, I need to go to the bathroom. Like he could, he could have added it on the end. It it would have been funny, (laughs) you know, know, same effect, but at least you let you know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that stuff, it's that stuff that sticks with you that, you know, I think it's because you just, you, you remember all, all the feelings that you were having at the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I was seven, you know, and like, and I carried that, you know, I, for so many years I carried, I mean, I, you know, I'm 34 now. So I mean, probably until I was about like 33, I carried that with me. We're like, how could he do that to me? You know, that's, I'm not bad. I'm not good at math, but that's a long time to carry that with me, you know? Yeah. 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 But it had that, you know, we never know how big of an impact those things have. And I think what's great about you saying that is that I think a lot of the time people probably think, well, I shouldn't have these feelings still around that, or I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't a lot of that, like judging the resentment. And like, if it's there, it's there. Don't worry what, whether, you know, whether it was funny or not funny or dumb or valid or invalid, doesn't matter. The resentment's there. And so what's cool about your situation is you were just like, look, I was resentful about this situation. I carried it a long time and it affected me. So I, I get that. I get that. So your parents, what did they do when they moved here? So my dad was a graphic designer. And right when he came here, he kept doing that. He worked for, he was like one of the guys that would like put up signs outside of like, you know, outside of theaters or whatever. And like the Cinerama Dome, which is now, I guess, a part of the Arclight. Like he, I remember him like working on that sign and being really proud. And my mom worked, uh, she worked at like a beauty salon. She was like a cleaning lady. And she did so. Oh, and she worked at uh, at Universal City Walk selling like 
weird little jewelry stuff, you know, like mood rings and puka shell necklaces and whatnot. You know? <laughs> really high end jewelry, yeah. what one might like say. Like the, uh, what are those called? The little kiosk. Yeah, the kiosk, exactly. Yeah. And so they were, so once again, my grandma was kind of left to like, you know, to, to take care of me. And, but my parents, yeah, I mean, they worked really hard to make sure that the rent was paid and that there was food in the fridge and dinner was on the table, you know, and my mom like was working three jobs, I think for the first few years that we were here, like nonstop. Wow. So did you have a lot of interaction with them or would you, you had a lot of freedom? Sounds like. A lot of freedom, a lot of freedom. And they would kind of like, they would leave to work and then they would come home late at night and they would ask me like, Hey, did you, you know, did you do your homework yesterday? Did you, you know, and I'd say, of course, of course, of course I did my homework, you know? And they were, I think like my mom was so tired that she would never, I don't think she ever asked like, could I see the homework that you did or anything? Yeah, right. I don't think to this day I've ever done a homework assignment in my entire life, you know? (laughs) Well, in fairness, you did start school not speaking the language at all. So before you can learn anything people are saying, you got to be able to understand it. So I think, you know, that's fair. Thank you. I'm here for all the co-signing, <laughs> all the co-signing, any paperwork, co-sign. I'm here for all of it. Thank you. So, okay. So when, what age did you start kind of getting into, into trouble? So I had these kids that I like kind of these other Russian kids that were in my neighborhood. Uh, and I like, you know, I looked up to them and they, you know, they were always like getting into trouble and they were just kind of doing like cool stuff, you know? And, uh, and they were like my friend's older brothers. And I was an only child until I was about 16 or 17. So I always like looked, so I looked up to them and they're like, you know, and their siblings and we would kind of go and hang out with them. And at some point we started, uh, we saw them like, uh, like vandalizing like stuff, you know, like getting spray paint and vandalizing stuff. And we're like, that's what we need to do. We need to go like steal our neighbor's spray paint from the garage and like show them that we can do that too. And we did, and we went and we like stole some spray paint. And I remember they saw us one day like tagging on a curb or something. And, and they came up uh, like this one kid, uh, Roman, he came up to us and he was like, Hey, we're going to start a, we're going to start a graffiti crew for you guys. And it's called RGB. And I was like, well, what does that stand for? He's like Russian gangbangers, you know? And, uh, and we would go and they would give us like spray paint or markers. And we were just going like tag RGB on whatever walls, you know? And we didn't realize that what, that while we were doing this, we were kind of like being the distraction for them. So they would be like, Hey, go tag on this wall. And they would like go like, you know, and when the owner of the business would see us doing that, he would like come out and they would go in and like go into the register and steal stuff. Or like we would be like doing this out in front of somebody's house while they would be, I guess, performing like a residential burglary of sorts, you know? Perfect. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And they got us like, I even remember them getting us like little Adidas track suits, you know, cause we were maybe like 12 or 13 at the time. So we all had like matching. I mean, it was really bad. You that know? is the most Russian thing I've <laughs> oh, ever yeah. heard. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, I had a family friend who, like my mom's best friend's daughter, Olga, who later on became my stepsister, which is like a whole nother story. Uh, She saw this all happening and she was like, hey, like she saw me hanging out with them and getting into trouble and like we were smoking cigs and just, you know, thought we were so cool. And she was like, hey, no, like no more of this, you know, and she was like, 
no more basketball. Like whatever your weird stuff you're doing with them, like no. And she got me a skateboard. For, I think with one of her first like paychecks at her job, she was two years older than me. She got me a skateboard and like a bag of weed. And she goes, here, just do this, you know? And I think like me and I told some of my other friends, I was like, hey, I got some weed, you know? And uh, and I remember like we, I think we either got like a page out of the Thomas Guide maybe or like maybe like ripped a page out of like the yellow pages, you know, or something. Like we didn't know that like how you roll a joint, you know? And we took like the whole, like with the seeds and the stems and everything, like we kind of like try to turn it into a joint, you know? But the second we sparked that, like, you know, whatever Thomas guy joint, you know, it was like the tracksuit disappeared, like all of that stuff, you know, it was like gone. And I had like found my purpose, which is like, oh, hey, I'm going to smoke this stuff, you know, M- maybe not out of a Yellow Pages notebooks, you know, a page. And I'm going to like get on this skateboard and this is going to like take me everywhere. And I was never like a good skateboarder, you know, like I was, I could never do the tricks. I was kind of a poser, but it gave me an identity. Right. So you lost the suit, the track suit and became, became a, like a stoner skater. Yeah. Which kind of like, you know, the, which that comes with, uh, like with its own stuff, you know, like we, I would hang out with other like little stoner skater kids. And then after a while I was like, Hey, I got this, you know, I got these like mushrooms that we have to try eating, or I got this stuff, you know, this like little paper stuff that you put some on your tongue and or cocaine, you know, like I went to, uh, I was bust out to uh, Palisades every day, you know, so like that was kind of like a very liberal school at the time. It was an open campus, so you could like come and go as you please technically. And I kind of started experimenting with a lot of stuff there, you know, and I just like my sister, went, or my now sister, who's still at that time was not my sister. She was going to school there. So she was like a little Wait, older. Wait, what's that about? So Olga, who gave me that skateboard and the bag of weed, was my mom's best friend's daughter. Okay. And at some point, my parents split up when I like turned 15. And okay. then her parents split up around like maybe a year after that. Okay. And then my mom started dating her stepdad. Got it. And then they got married and had a kid. So like my friend who that probably didn't I, go over well with the best friend, right? Oh no, yeah. Oh no. Or with my dad or with, you know, yeah, <laughs> Olga's okay. mom whose name is also Olga. I mean, it was like there was so much drama. It was like a really bad, like uh so like Barbara. a really bad Russian episode of Jerry Springer, <laughs> basically. <laughs> It sounds it sounds complicated. Okay. So you got a new sister. Got a new sister. Mm-hmm. She started introducing you. Yeah, she started, you know, she was like, oh, this is my little brother, you know, and uh, I mean, maybe I wasn't her. Yeah, I guess I was her little brother at that point already. And she would like kind of take me around to, you know, like introduce me to her friends. And they all thought it was like really funny to like, you know, give me, a, you know, like here, try ecstasy, you know, or like here, do this, you know, or like here, do some blow with us before school in the morning, you know, and I was like, oh, this is great. And that was kind of like when my grades, like prior to that, my grades were really good, you know? And, um, at that point they really just started like going down. I started getting kicked out of schools. I started getting, you know, just the stuff that comes, the normal stuff that comes with like having drugs take priority in your life over school or other stuff that you should be doing. Yeah. And did your family notice what was going on or like was, was what were the conversations at home? Like, and did you know what addiction alcoholism was? I had absolutely no clue what it was. You know, I think uh, when I was in junior high, I had one friend 
who like would get in a lot of trouble, you know, and he was sent to like, there was these like groups or classes, I don't know, whatever. I don't even know what they were, you know, what it would be, what it would be, but it was, uh, it was impact basically, which I don't know if it's like a tad, like the same as like the treatment center impact or whatever, you know, but there was a program called impact. And I remember going there because my friend Rocco was like, dude, if we, uh, he's, he went there and I was like, how is it? He's like, man, they get us pizza every Friday and we get to like hang out and eat pizza and like talk about our feelings, you know? And I'm like, wait, did you just say free pizza? So I would go, so I was, so I was like, yeah, I have a problem with what, you know, whatever it was, you know? So I like lied to get into there, but I don't think I heard a thing in there. Cause I was just like, Let, I'm going to stuff my face with as much pizza as I possibly can. Oh my so, gosh. So Can yeah, we just have... talk about the fact that you snuck into drug addiction classes? That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here for the pizza. Yeah. I'm just here for the pizza. I mean, oh, I love it. I think That's I remember like, trying to like make up because well, they were like, Oh, like what are you addicted to? You know, and I and <laughs> I like, like and I was like, I didn't even pizza. know. Yeah. I was like, I didn't even know like what drugs were, you know, like what to say yeah. I was addicted. You know, I was like, oh something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> crack cocaine uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's amazing yeah. so how did things progress like things obviously because things obviously progress what what did that look like so i had you know like i don't know we would just like you know we would go out and we would like i got a, i remember getting a fake id when i was pretty young and this is kind of when i first learned that there was like something somewhere maybe to go at some point when i needed to get help you know was uh or i should have learned then but i kind of didn't yet we got like some fake IDs and I think my fake ID was like taken by security because I didn't look anything like it. And, uh, <laughs> cause it was happened. an eight foot black man. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm like, no, no, that's me. No, it's definitely me. Definitely me. Um, <laughs> and man, my, that fake ID. And I, I still like, I still own amends to the guy whose fake ID it was. The guy's name was Tapio Christopher Schnars and he lived in, Santa Cruz. And it kind of looked like me, you know, but I got this guy kicked out of all Disney resorts and places like banned from there permanently because I was drinking underage at the House of Blues in Anaheim at like a at like some Wu-Tang show. Yeah. So if if you're listening, Tapio, find me. I, <laughs> I owe you one. <laughs> I want to make things right. But what kind of, and also Tapio Christopher Schnars. What a great name. And yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So that ID got taken away. And, uh, and I had some friends that were, we would like drive, or somebody told me they were like, hey, if you go to art shows, you could drink for free, you know? And we would go in there and we, and we would walk in and we would look at like stuff, you know, and be like, wow, this wall is amazing, you know? And we would drink like free white wine and PBR. <laughs> amazing and there was a and sparks was kind of big at that time which was like the precursor to four locos which i never drank but i drank enough sparks where like i think my tongue is still orange some mornings from how <laughs> oh much God. i drank of it and uh <laughs> chernobyl yeah. it's the sparks it's Sparks, exactly <laughs> and we ended up in silver lake driving around and we saw a bunch of people outside of a place that had uh that, were, that had cups in their hands and they were drinking and they were smoking cigs. And we were like, oh man, we need, that's an art show, you know? And we parked and we walk in and like the art in this room was like particularly bad, you know? Uh, there was these like weird <laughs> balloon lights hanging up and there was like calligraphy, like signs oh with calligraphy God. writing that said stuff like easy does it and like live and let mm -hmm. God. 
and like a upside down, like think, think, think. I mean, you know, and uh, and usually most people would take those as red flags. But I remember walking up to a guy and being like, "Hey, where's the where's the free drinks at?" Or like, "Where's it?" I don't know. I don't know exactly what I yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy looked at me and he was like, "Brother, this is a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, but we'll save a seat for you." And I was like, "Oh my god, we got to get." the hell away from here as quickly as we can before any of this weird stuff rubs off on us you know so we jumped in the car and we were on our way and um and i had a friend who like you know maybe like i was, I was around the time i was 17 or 18 and uh i had a friend who told me uh who was like the first dude i knew that tried to get sober you know not by his own will like he was a. Uh, he was like a little bit worse than we all were. And he was like, he was right, like punk right. rock. He had like a big mohawk and he was like, you know, just like, you know, he, I remember him giving himself a tattoo when he was like 16 mm-hmm. with like a electronic mm-hmm. toothbrush. You know, he was one of those guys <laughs> and, uh, and like his, you know, and, uh, I, I called him one night when like, you know, I got, I was working somewhere and I got paid and I had some other friends like that would drink and would party. And we got into this van, this minivan that my friend had, and we went and we were drinking and he had some pills and we ate these pills and then at like some point like you know i just kind of remember like like it was like i was like 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 blacking out and i would come back to and then they would be like hey here's this pipe you should hit it and i'd be like okay and then they'd be like hey here's this thing you know you should do this and i'd be like okay you know and i would do whatever like whatever else was coming my way i would do it and Just kind of coming, like, you know, like passing out and then coming to and then passing out and coming to. And every time there would be like something else in my hand, you know, like there was like one time there was a pipe and another time there was like some foil with some stuff on it. And uh, and when I like came to the next morning at someone's house, uh, I was like, man, like what? You know, like uh, there was like a bunch of like needles laying around, you know, and like a bunch of all my friends were like still passed out. And I remember like thinking like, wow, like what? You know, like what had happened? Like what? Like I had no clue what went down. And as they were waking up, they were like, dude, you were so, you were so messed up. Like we were, we were all shooting up, but you, you were like so messed up. We couldn't even like get you to shoot up, you know, which I was pretty, I was like, well, okay, well that's nice, you know, but uh, <laughs> like, that's really cool. Thanks guys. But uh, I had a friend who, who was like the first dude I knew in recovery where from like a, the punk rock one. So he, when we were like 16 or 17 and we were out one night and I remember like, you know, we were, it was pretty late and we pulled up to his house to drop him off. And he was like, man, that's a really weird looking van across the street from my house, you know? And I was like, dude, we've been doing cocaine all night. Like every van looks weird at this point, you know? And, uh, and he went into his house and then I tried to call him the next day and he didn't answer. And then like the next day again, he didn't answer. And, uh, then we got word from his family that like, it actually was a weird van because they like called that like wilderness program to like pick him up. And he went into like, you know, for two years he was gone and like living in Utah, like, you know, like cooking his own beans, you know, to like, so he was right. It was a weird looking van. And, um, and I remember after that happened, you know, I, I called him, he had seven months sober at the time and I called him the next day and I was like, dude, Mark, like, you know, like I thought he would be like proud of me for like, you know, for like leveling up in my active alcoholism, you know, or addiction. And uh, I was like, dude, you're not going to believe it. Like I smoked heroin last or I smoked dope and like, you know, and we, whatever, you know, and, uh, and he told me something that's always stuck with me, you know, and he was like, haven't you seen what this disease has done to me? You know? And, uh, and I was like, what, like I'd, I'd never heard of this referred to as a disease before. I just thought Mark partied to the point where he had like 
two large Samoan dudes pull him out of his bed and take him to wilderness camp for two years. And, uh, and he told me, he was like, promise me three things. And I was like, okay. He's like, promise me you're not going to do that again. And I was like, okay, sure. He's like, promise me you're not going to put a needle in your arm, which I was like, well, I wasn't planning on it, but okay, sure. You know? And he was like, and if you ever want to get help, go to a meeting, you know? And, and I never really like asked him, you know, like what, you know, like, well, like, where do I find one of these meetings? Or like, and do I need to wear a suit and tie or like get a briefcase, you know? But I was like, okay, cool. And that was one of the last conversations I had with him because he got that idea where he, you know, like he was, uh, he was like, I'm going to do that just one more, you know? And, and that's the thing where it's like, you know, like the, like, you know, AA is always going to be there. NA is always like, you know, treatment centers are always going to be there, but we don't know if we're going to get the opportunity to come back, you know? And he was one of those dudes where he got that just one more in him and it was the last one, you know? And I wish I could say that like at that point I went and I got clean and sober and here we are, you know, today. But, uh, that was when kind of like some of the darker using started coming up for me, you know? And I've had this happen. Like it's been a reoccurring theme is like when these like big traumatic events happen, that's where like I really drive in head first into my like active alcoholism. And, you know, that was like when I really got into doing opiates a lot. I was smoking a lot of heroin. I was just like, just all the, just all that stuff, just trying to cope with the feelings of losing somebody like my best friend, you know, I, I didn't want to face it. How did you find out? His sister called me, you know, and I remember talking to her and her telling, like me telling her like, hey, um, uh, she was like, I, I walked into Mark's room and there was a cheeseburger that had two bites taken out of it. There was a, a Sprite, which still had the ice cubes in it, you know, that hadn't melted. And there was cigarette smoke in the room. And but it was too late. We called the paramedics. By the time they got here, it was too late. And I like so vivid. And I remember thinking like, wait how are you telling me this? It's not April fools. Like why would like, you know, like, how is this? Like, it was like, it was surreal. I couldn't believe it, you know? And, uh, and I just kind of like went on doing, you know, like trying to like mask those feelings. And that was like when I for, like got like really strung out for the first time and like realized like what a habit was. And I had a girlfriend at the time and, uh, me and her like really like got into like using really heavy and shortly, maybe like about a year, year and a half after that, it was like New Year's Eve, and uh, we had devised this plan where we were like, hey, we need to get sober, you know? I don't think we used the word sober because I didn't know what that really meant, you know? But we were like, we just got to stop. Break. Yeah, take a break. We got to stop doing that. And our brightest idea was I got a bottle of Jameson at like a work Christmas party, and I was like, oh, if we drink this Jameson and eat all of these mysterious pills that we have like laying around the house, then it was, we'll wake up, it'll be New Year's Day, New Year, New Me, we won't be addicted to opiates anymore, we'll be good. Totally, <laughs> yeah. totally, that's how it works. That's exactly, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly, and it made perfect sense at the time, you know? So oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So we drank as much of the Jameson as we could, we took whatever like Somas and Klonopin and whatever we had, and uh, and we went to sleep, you know, right around midnight. And she woke me up <laughs> around five, you know. And Cinderella <laughs> became a non-opiate <laughs> addict. <laughs> and she woke me up and was like, hey, this isn't where, like, you know, this isn't like working. We like, you know, I like, we got to go downtown and cop. And I was like, no, babe, it's going to be fine. Take one of these Zannies or like whatever it was we had, you know. And she was like, no, fool, I don't think you understand. Like, if we don't go down there right now, I'm going to burn this house. Sick. Yeah. yeah. 
with you, me, and our dog Nugget, who was like a little dachshund terrier. Like I don't know why, you know, like he was like the sweet. Like what? I don't know why, why you got to bring him into exactly, this. Exactly, you know. But I realized at that point just how serious she was, you know. And we got into the car and we went and we copped. And driving back from downtown, we were getting off. We were living in Echo Park and we were getting off on the Alvarado off ramp. And she nodded out behind the wheel. And we went under this flatbed truck, like right at the off ramp. And it was one of those accidents where, like, I had a photo of the car for a while where, like, you look at it and you're like, oh, they did. Like, they did not make okay, it. Okay, wait, 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 hold up, hold up. Back, 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 back. Okay. What kind of car are you driving? Scion TC. Yeah, duh, obviously. Okay. So you take this Scion, a flatbed truck. Yeah. Like like a big... Like a big truck, yes. Big, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm just... just Okay, yes. like a oh, big... Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything on the flatbed? Nothing on the flatbed. Okay, know? so... Which maybe so, is the reason that we're I'm here talking to you today. Okay, okay. Empty flatbed. Your car... Went under... Like fast and furious. Yes. No. Well, no. Like they like smashed under, like crashed into it. Oh yes, under. yes. Yeah. Not as not as delicately. Yeah. But. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you went under, just not not yeah, not like we didn't make it out on the other. <laughs> you side. didn't make it out on the other yeah. side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you guys like any injuries? Oh yeah. I mean. Nothing like uh, like I I had a I have a scar on my nose like where I think my face hit the windshield or maybe the dashboard or something and uh, but like we walked away you know like we we were able to walk I mean we, we didn't walk away we were taken in an ambulance away from the scene you know and and I remember in that moment I remembered Mark's voice and him telling me like when you want to get help go to a meeting, you know, and I looked up meetings in the Silver Lake area or wherever I was living. And there was this place, the Cafe Tropical, which I went to and I show up. And oddly enough, it's that same room where I went to a few years prior trying to get a free drink uh, on a Friday night. And I walk in there and that old timer was not lying. They did save a seat for me, you know, and that's kind of like where my journey into recovery began where I would come in and I was like broken and I was willing and I really wanted and needed to get sober in that moment, but I wouldn't do the work, you know, and I would come in and I would like, I'm the kind of alcoholic that's really good at like building a life up, but I'm even better at burning it down, you know? And then I'm like, and then I would build it up again really quickly. And then I would just burn it down and I would come in and I would take it, I would get a commitment and I would, get, you know, like maybe hang out with some people and people would be like, Hey, do you have a sponsor? And I'd say, no. And they'd be like, that guy would be a great sponsor for you. And I think to myself, shit, now I can't go to that Thursday meeting anymore. Cause now I got to run into a weird sponsor guy, you know, and I would get a new job and I'd get a new girlfriend and my life would get big and I would stop showing up for that commitment. And I would stop showing, calling those people, you know, and then next thing I know, I would end up with everything I own in a 30-gallon trash bag yet again, wondering how I got here, you know, and walking into those rooms once again and seeing the same people that were there in that first meeting that I walked into that are now, like, getting married, you know, and are, like, you know, are going back to school. And, like, all of a sudden now they're, like, having a kid and they're buying a house and now they're going to graduate school. And, like, then they're getting their doctorate. And I'm like, wait, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, like, why can't, why can I not get this, you know, but not still not being willing enough to try like working any steps or like getting a sponsor, actually doing the work. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. 
Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. So tell me about at that time, what was it about talking to the weird sponsor guy or talking to a sponsor? Like, why didn't you want to do that? Oh, I don't know. You know, like I, I wish I had like a... It was like, like a, a visceral reaction. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because okay. I think as much as I wanted to change or needed to change in that moment, you know, I wasn't like, there was a certain comfort that I had with like going down to Skid Row and copping every morning or with like waking up dope sick or like getting another charge or like being homeless yet again, or like being kicked out of a motel. But the discomfort of actually having to do the work to change had outweighed the discomfort of waking up dope sick yet again. I think that's a, yeah, in a simple form, like that's what. But you didn't actually know what the work was. Because I didn't you'd know. Never done it exactly. Exactly. And that's the crazy part is you were afraid of work. You didn't even know what that meant. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the steps might have as well have been in a foreign language that I didn't understand because I would just look at it and be like, "What? I don't understand what that says," you know? Because I never got a sponsor and I never tried doing any of that in those nine years of me like coming in and out and in and out and in and out. I never once worked a single step. What was the longest period of sobriety that you had in those nine years? I think I got a 90-day chip once. Oh, wow. Okay. So real short. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I would always like, you know, my whole thing was like, I went to detox a few times. I went to like American Recovery and they would always like offer the, you know, like, hey, like we have a, you know, like a transitional living or like a residential program that you can go to like without paying anything but I was like, I have this really big life out there for me, you know, like I have to get back to my nothingness that I was doing, you know, and I would get out and, the, and I remember them telling me like, okay, if you're not going to take that suggestion, get out and the first place you go is go to a meeting, you know, and I would and I would go to the meetings and I would like try to get like recovery by osmosis, you know, and I was like, oh, if I hang out with these people and go to like a shitty diner after the meeting and drink this coffee then I will stay sober, you know, but that's kind of, yeah, I've come to realize that that's not really how it works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How, what did your relationship with your family look like while you were going in and out? Oh man, it's, you know, it's, I strained my, like, you know, like I strained that relationship so much, you know? And at first it was like, there was that hope. Like I remember them dropping me off in detox for the first time and like having that relief and like, just being like, wow, this is it. He's going to get it, you know? And then like, as time went, like, you know, they would still like give me like a little Christmas present here, like some, you know, and then as time went on, it was like more and more, you know, it became more evident to me that like they kind of didn't want to have anything to do with me, you know, and uh, without ever like going to Al-Anon, you know, I remember going to my mom's house, like my mom, I would always see her like at first she would let me into her house and then she would be like, hey, I'll still meet you like and I'll get you lunch somewhere, you know, and uh, 
And at the end of like, at the end of it all, like, you know, whatever the lunch or whatever, I'd be like, mom, I need, you know, and I, and I was like the master of being like, oh, I have another detox or a sober living I could go into. I just need 200 bucks now, you know? And I can't tell you how many of those 200 bucks I got for this like magical sober living or magical treatment center that cost $200 for some reason, you know, that she gave me. And, uh, she, at the end of these like little meetups we had, she would always be like, Hey, can you take a photo with me? You know? And, uh, And I mean, I looked so horrible at that time, you know, and I was sucked up and I came in this time, I was 127 pounds and I'm six foot three, you know, and I had like the bags. Oh my God. Yeah. I heroin chic as I like, as I call it. That's real chic. Yeah. Real chic. Yeah. That's real chic. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and she would always take these photos, you know, and, um, and this time, and when I got sober this time, you know, like, and we, and like, I was on pass from the, the treatment center where I was at and she, we went, we got sushi and she was like, can I take a photo of you? Like, can I take a photo with you again? And I was like, mom, here you go with these stupid photos, you know? And, uh, and I was like, sure. You know, we had like the waiter take a photo of us. And, uh, and she told me something that's always going to stick with me and I'll never forget. And she was like, you know, she's like, now I could finally delete all those other photos. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, why, you know, why did you save them? She goes, well, I was saving those because I didn't know if that was going to be the last photo that I got of you, you know? And I still get chills from that. Like, I still get chills. Where, like, I didn't, re- you know, I never really understood just how much it affected everybody else around me. I was like, I'm just a junkie. I just want to, I just want to get high, you know, like, but I didn't realize just the effect that it had on my mom, on my little brother, on my dad, you know, who at that point, like, but when I got sober this time, it passed away, you know, like on my grandma, on ever, on ever, my friends that loved me, you know, on everybody, really. I always just thought that I was hurting myself. I never understood what it did to uh, to everybody around me. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember saying to my parents, like, I'm just hurting myself. Meanwhile, I'm a teenager at this time. And uh, saying, like, I'm just hurting myself and really not comprehending that they were in prison with me, you know, the entire time and, and how much that... But, you know... When you're in it, you can't experience anybody else's pain. Your pain, your own pain is so big and deep that there's no room for anyone else. And that's why we end up alone. What? Tell me about a couple of things. So one, I don't know, like becoming a junkie, like using needles. First of all, I was terrified of needles, terrified. And I ended up becoming a piercer and a heroin addict. So... You go figure. Um, but uh, but the the idea that you would become an IV user, was that insane? Like, was that just like an insane idea to you? Or was it like, whatever? No, because for years, I like, I really looked down on everybody that was like, uh-huh. an IV. I was like, oh my God, you know, how could you? And I would ew. see, yeah, ew, exactly. And I would see what it did to like my friends that became IV users. I saw like their lives just completely burned down right away. And I was always quickly. able to, really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I was always able to be like, well, if I do that, then that, then that'll happen to me, you know? So I, I only smoked opiates for, and smoked amphetamines for about eight years from when I first did them, you know? And, uh, when my dad passed, right when my dad passed away pretty suddenly was when like within a month or two of that, I started at first, it was like, well, I don't want to do dope because that was what I, that was what killed Mark, you know? And, uh, and I promised him I wouldn't, you know, like use needles or I promised him. So like the, you know, like the give or take was, Oh, I'm just going to start 
injecting amphetamines. Mm-hmm, that's totally different. And yep. then totally different. And then I'm not letting him down, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I started <laughs> shooting up amphetamines and then I was like, well, what if I just mix a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little. Just a little bit, you know? Like, yep, yep. like 70, 30, you know? He'll never know yeah, the he'll difference. Never, yeah. <laughs> Still not letting him down. So 70, yeah, 30. Yeah. So I start doing I love, the, I love the um, rationale, the junkie, junkie, junkie oh, yeah. rationale. I oh, love it. Oh my God. It's amazing. It's yeah. <laughs> so, so, okay. So 70, 30, 70, 30. And then it was like, well, let me do like 50, 50, you know? And mm-hmm. then I was like, well, yeah, let yeah. me do like 30, 70. And mm-hmm. then I was like, well, I've been doing this for six months. I might as well just start, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. We're all in heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm so grateful that I did because that really just, you know, like, my bottom really came up real a lot quicker, you know, with that, you know, like that was when like, I really became like, like actually became like homeless, homeless for the first time. And that was like when like a lot of the overdoses started and I couldn't like, there's no keeping it like, you know, there's no keeping a job when you're an IV drug user, you know? No, I, no. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some like, you know, there's weird a, I've heard. I've heard some a few people, but I don't relate to that. Like, I don't. My job is to be like I'm a full timer kind of girl. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Same, I'm not yeah. trying. To, not trying to work. Yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> yeah, it's a full time job trying to find a, full- a vein in the morning. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the and then the and then the uh, the money and trying to find the money and then you use it and it's it's an exhausting full time job. What was it like when you were homeless? I mean, it's crazy because for years I was like, that would never be me. It was the same thing with the IV, you know, like with the IV use. And I thought that could never be me. And I like took a lot of pride in like, I always had like for long, the longest time I always had like an apartment or like a guest house. And then I would always like, you know, and then it became like sublets where like after getting evicted once, like you can't really, you know, people aren't too keen on like renting to you, you know? So I was like, oh, I could do sublets. And then like at the very early stages of Airbnb, I got into like, oh, I could stay at these like Airbnb things, you know, which I'm now banned for life from ever going on Airbnb. Oh my God. The damage I caused. And then, and then the homelessness kind of came where it's like, you know, like, it's some like you have one of those nights where it's like, oh, well, I have this dollar amount and I could either get that like motel room or the Airbnb or the thing, or I can get well, you know, and the getting well is always going to take priority to it, you know? So at first it was like, I never had any like long term, like, you know, but I feel like any homelessness is like, you know, like I, like I was on, you know, there was like extended periods where I would be like on the street, you know, like maybe like I would always like try to get into like a motel or I would always try to like have like some other people where we could like pool our money and get a few of us like into getting a room for a night or two, you know, where I could really like shower, go stay with this person or that person or, you know, but I remember uh, on the Christmas right before I got sober, I didn't have anywhere to go. Like I didn't have anywhere. And I remember showing up to my mom's house and being like, well, she'll let me in. It's Christmas Eve, you know, like I, you know, like it'll be cool. And I didn't have a phone or anything. And I remember showing up there and, uh, and like, no, you know, and she had changed the key. She finally had changed the the lock. So like my key didn't fit the lock. And I was like, that's weird. You know, like what? (laughs) <laughs> like maybe maybe it's the wrong oh, figure yeah exactly. and uh and she came outside and she was like hey i'll bring you a plate outside but that's the best i'm doing you know which was really nice of her looking back at it and i remember like taking the bus back to hollywood after eating like whatever the few bites that she gave me and like i was bummed that she wouldn't give me like 20 bucks you know and uh 
and like walking and like not just realizing like I had nowhere to go. You know, I had nowhere to go. I remember seeing like the Capitol Records Christmas tree on top of the Capitol Records building, you know, and like just kind of like sitting at a bus stop, you know, just that whole night and just being like, well, when tomorrow comes and I'll keep it pushing, you know, like it was, it was just one of those things where like, I, I, I never would have imagined, you know, like I, I would see, you know, like, and I would get high with people that were homeless, but I was like, yeah, that's just not me, you know, until it mm-hmm. was, you know, until it was. It's crazy. It's, you know, people say to me, like, how did you possibly do these things? How, and, and it does, it creeps up on you because you're it like it did for those people too right like it just it creeps up and it takes you down thread by thread but eventually eventually you end up in the same situations that they're in you know a as they say in program like a a a hanger on right like you, in an unwanted hanger on you you are unwanted in places i mean the picture of you coming to your mother's house on christmas eve and she put a plate out for you like you're a dog you know, her kid. And that's, I can't even imagine how hard that must've been, you know, but, but we are no longer also the same people that we were when we were sober, you know, when we're, when we're not loaded, like we're not the same person. We're not safe. We're not clean. We're, you know, we might lie to you, steal for, you know, we're just not safe to have, you know, to have in the house. And so I, I get that. Like, and, and it's a scary thing to feel like you, don't have control over yourself. Mm-hmm. So you, you're homeless. How long? So when you're when you're homeless and when you're doing this, another question: like, what kinds of things? Like, what was the day in the life like when you were homeless trying to get drugs? Like, how did you generate income? What like how did what would you do? I middlemaned a lot of drugs. I took a lot of pride in like you know being like oh like this person needs this amount. If I get that for them, not only can I pinch their bag a little bit, you know, but I could also, but then they will also give me some for making this happen for them. You know, I stole a lot. Like I was like, you know, like, I mean, some of my like hardest amends have been to like laws prevention officers and like establishments that I would steal from. I would uh, usually come to somewhere, you know, and like being asked to leave, whether it was a motel or somebody's house or a bus stop or outside of a business. And then I would say, man, all right, this place is going to open soon enough. And so I got to like go and like put on my best attire. So right when I walk through that door, so I'm not being, you know, so that I'm not like an immediate like red flag for them to just come at like dart after me. I would go to the CVS on, I think it's Yucca and Cahuenga and I would steal bronzer from there and put bronzer on so my skin wouldn't, so they wouldn't notice, they wouldn't notice, you know, just how pale I was going into these places. And I would usually go and like boost something and then whatever I would boost, steal, you know, like uh, I heard a speaker say, he was like, he was like, yeah, he's like, I told my sponsor that I just like boosting stuff. And he was like, boy, stop making it cute. You were a thief, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so I'm trying to like, you know, yes, yeah, so I would go yeah. and steal yeah. stuff. You know, I'm not going to make it cute. I, was, I would go and steal stuff and either go and try to take trade it for some drugs or try to return it for some store credit, which then I would go to somewhere and sell that store credit or try to like find a drug dealer that would take, uh, you know, like uh, the two cents on the dollar for the store credit that I just got, you know, and then go and get my quote unquote utensils to get these drugs into me, you know, and 
trying to find a public restroom somewhere where I would be left alone long enough to get it in. And like, you know, like hopefully it didn't smell like too much pee and like where I wouldn't get kicked out within, you know, 20 minutes of me being locked into this bathroom and then just keep repeating that over and over again. And you know what? And and I was okay with it. To me, I was like, this is cool. Like I got it figured out. Like I'm good. That's crazy, right? That's the crazy part is like what you become willing to live with. What changed? What changed was over the years, I had so many, like, you know, I had many physical bottoms. I had like many, you know, I had the overdoses. There was the homelessness. There was all that stuff that comes with this disease, you know? And I just don't think any of them were sufficient enough for me to actually surrender. And I saw a friend one day, he was driving a car and like, I hadn't seen him in a, he was that guy that like, I was driving around with the night when we were like, you know, there was like putting the foil and the crack pipe and all that stuff in my hand. And he was like a lower, he was always like a lower companion where I was like, at least I'm not bad as that dude, you know? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I saw him and he was driving a car, like a nice car, you know, like not like a beater that had like no bumper on it, you know, and he was driving a car and he looked healthy and like, and I saw like a light on in his eyes and he pulled up to me outside of this gas station. And he was like, dude, how are you? And I asked him, I was like, uh, where, like, what, what clinical trial did you sign up for? Which mir- what miracle drug are you doing? And where do I sign up for it? And he was like, man, I, I went into treatment. I got a sponsor and worked the steps. And I've been sober for nine months, like through AA. Do you want me to help you? You know, and I had that gift of desperation. And I had that little window of hope and willingness where I was like, yes. And I asked him for help. And he was like, all right, let's go to a meeting tonight. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't say tonight, you know? <laughs> And he was like, come on, I'll get you dinner and a pack of smokes and we'll go to, you know, just come like, what's the worst thing that can happen, you know? And, uh, and I said, and he would pick me up on Thursdays and he would take me to meetings, you know, and uh, on Thursday and Sunday, he would pick me up and he would either take me to Thursday. And you were, you were homeless I was, at this time. I wasn't homeless. I was houseless. Like I didn't have my own house, home, you know, but I was staying yeah. in a place in Hollywood Okay. With okay. some drug dealers, you know, and like I had a, like, I could come and go as I please and they weren't asking me to leave, you know? And I had like a good amount. I was like, I had finally like gotten to the point where like I was selling enough drugs where like it didn't like affect my using where I, I was pretty good, you know, like, or so I thought. Like I was, I finally had figured it out. Like, you know, like okay. I had enough dope and I had enough meth and I like had like, you know, like a roof over my head and I had a, car that did not belong to me and I, I had to make amends with that car later on too because it was like a stolen car that I should not have been driving and he started taking me to meetings you know and he would take he would pick me up in the morning and or, or Sundays and the night on Thursdays and he would take me to a meeting and get me some smokes and he would get me some food or like a burrito or a sandwich after and uh and like about a month in and he would let me get loaded in his car or whatever you know and about a month in I remember looking at him and being like man, I don't know if this sobriety shit's just cut out for me, you know? And he goes, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, I just don't know if like if sobriety's really going to work for me. He goes, dude, well, yeah, you're not sober. Yeah, obviously, it's not going to work for you. And once again, like when I asked him, like, you know, to help me, I was like, what, well, what should I do? And he was like, well, you do you want to go into treatment? I could get you into somewhere, you know? And And I just said yes, you know? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he was like, all right, but just give me 90 days. He was like, just tell them like agreed that you'll do 90 days in this treatment center. And then if nothing's changed at the end of it, you can always go back, you know, like we'll refund your misery basically. And I was like, all right, let's do this. You know? And that was kind of like, and he got me into a place which no longer exists, you know? And, uh, 
And I'm, you know, and I'm forever grateful for him getting like the, you know, the treatment center was like doing all kinds of weird insurance fraud stuff. And they were basically like getting insurance. Like I didn't have insurance when you're living the life that I was living. Like nobody would pay for insurance for me, but they would basically sign you up for like, I still don't really understand how insurance works, but they would get a policy for you and then pay for it. And then build the shit out of your insurance, like for all these services and stuff that you aren't really getting, you know, but them doing that, I mean, kind of saved my life. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the tactics behind it. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but it saved yeah, your life. But it saved my life, you know? And, uh, yeah, I got to that place and I got to detox. And I remember like the, like I have a friend that worked at that detox now. And he, he always reminds me, he's like, dude, when you came in there, he's like, not only did we not think you were going to make it, he's like, we didn't think you were going to live through detox. We we're like, oh man, like this guy's going to like take your sleep meds and not wake up the next day, you know? And uh, no, it was like a the shade of gray and like that, that detox sweat, you know, that just comes out of you. And uh, it's just horrible, you know? And I had this like really bad, um, like this really bad, like pink mohawk that I just died, you know? And I remember like passed out and I remember waking up and thinking that like I was bleeding to death because it was just oh, like, right. the, like the hair dye everywhere. Off. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was, it was horrible, you know? And while I was there, um, you know, they started like taking us to meetings, you know, and they started like, uh, you know, on the bus. And there was a dude who came up to me like maybe like the first week or so when I was in a meeting and, uh, and he was like, Hey, uh, he was like, Hey, like he was like, Hey, how you doing? Like, uh, you know, he was like, are you a newcomer? And I, and I remember being so taken back by it. I was like, oh, why would you assume that I'm a newcomer? You know, <laughs> and rude, yeah, rude, you know, and he was like, Hey, well, it's nice to meet you. You know, my name is blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and he came up to me the next week and he was like, dude, Danny, how are you? How you been? You know? And, uh, and I was shocked because like, he wasn't a loss prevention officer that remembered my name or an officer that had arrested me and was like, don't come back here. You know, like he was just a dude that genuinely just wanted to know how I was doing. And, uh, and these words came out of my mouth that never came out of my mouth before. Where I was like, dude, what do I got to do to stay sober? You know? And, uh, and he kind of like laughed a bit and he goes, well, like, you know, he's like, well, what they told me was like, put as much work into this as you did out there, you know? And I was like, man, that sounds like a lot of work, you know? Or, <laughs> and, and I kind of like, I broke down a day of my using for you. Like I broke it down for him and he laughed and he was like, man, then he's like, well, this is going to be a lot of work for you. You know, he's like, get a commitment at this meeting right away. You know, he's like, get a sponsor, start working the steps, you know, like read 86 to 88. When you wake up every morning, start praying and meditating. And I just started doing that stuff, you know, and I just started doing it like little by little and just kept, you know, just kind of kept doing the work and kept doing that stuff. And yeah, he basically told me just to do the same amount, just do put as much work into my recovery as I did into my getting loaded or my active alcoholism and whatever. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, man, this is going to be a lot of work. But I'm so grateful that he told me that then, you know, because it kind of, uh, and the weird thing is, is, like, I didn't get, I didn't ask that dude to be my sponsor or anything. You know, I was like, okay, cool, I'll do this stuff. And then in treatment, they were like, hey, before you can get passes, you can't, you have to finish your fourth step, you know? And I was like, crap. So I got a, I got this dude that was like, there was like a step working workshop thing. And like, I started going to that. And that's one of the things that I really love about like the program is it doesn't really matter why you do the things you do. Like you're going to get the results, you know, it doesn't care. Like it doesn't care. Like it's like, 
it's like the disease doesn't care whether about you or your feeling like the same thing about your recovery. It's like, there's no, like your motives don't matter. Like if you're going to the just same, do movie, it. yeah, just do it. Like I got through my fourth step, my first fourth step and read it because I wanted to put in passes to like go to like outside meetings that weren't men's meetings. Cause that's all my treatment center was taking us to, you know, like that was the only, like, it wasn't because I wanted to have like a spiritual experience or because I wanted to like, whatever, you know, like deal with that resentment I had from when the kid told me to say that to the teacher. I just simply wanted to go to meetings where I could see girls, you know, but I started doing the work and I like fell in love with doing the work, you know, like something changed. Like I finally had, you know, like the one, the only thing different in this like recovery than all those other ones was I did the work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been sober? For like four, I'll have five years in uh, July if I don't mess it up, you know? So like four and three quarters or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's funny. I had a mentor tell me that too. I used to tell him like, I'm only making this amends so that this person, so I'm letting this person know I'm better than they are. (laughs) Or like, I'm only going to this meeting to see this guy or I'm only, and he was like, you're going, like you made the amends, like it doesn't matter. And when I look back, you know, I had 14, it took 14 years in January. And when I look back on all those things that I did, even all the times that I didn't mean it or I did it for a different reason, none of it matters. I stayed sober. That's all that matters. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's, it really is. And even like, not just going to meetings, but the amends that I made that I didn't mean (laughs) because I made them and I made them appearing genuine. I actually do mean them now. And I made them back then and I cleaned it up. And even though I didn't have the recovery to have the the knowledge and vision around what happened, I have it now. And so the fact that I just did it anyway gave me the pathway to peace even when I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. It's I mean, it's it's like the most beautiful thing ever, you know, like just every like every step in its own way, you know, like I mean, but especially like, I love, I love them. And like, I love the nine step, you know, like I've time and time again, you know, like where it's just like, I've been, my favorite are the ones that you're like, I'm never going to make that amends, You know, I'm never going to, you know, like I'm never, and like my first sponsor was like, all right, make a list of all the ones you could do right away. The ones that you're going to do at some point and the ones you're, you cannot do, you know, you're unable to do. And then like, he didn't tell me right away that like, you're going to end up making all of those amends, you know? But, <laughs> but what was God, on the list of never? I mean, that like, you know, that, uh, that loss prevention, like the loss prevention officers that chased me down, you know, like, like certain ex-girlfriends, you know, like people that like had wronged me so bad that like I didn't, they didn't deserve, they didn't warrant an amends for me, you know, and those have been some of the most powerful, beautiful amends that I've made, you know, like where I'm just, you know, like there's one that. Just in the last like week, you know, I had a friend who I've known since I was 15 and we like started met, like we would, you know, party and like part ways and party and then part ways. And then like there was no partying and he, you know, and then we would still like whatever, you know, just did the things we did. And, uh, and at some point he let me borrow some money to like, whatever, to do something. And I, I told him I'd pay him back. And when it came time to pay him back, I paid him back the money he let me borrow. But he was like, but you made all of this money off of that. And I was like, yeah, but that wasn't, you know, and he was like, no, you owe me a portion of that now. And I was like, whoa, no, I don't. 
And I kind of, and I ran into him maybe when I had about a year sober and he was like, what's up? He's like, what are you going to pay me that money? And I was like, oh, pff, never, you know? And as time went on, it kind of became more and more evident that like, hey, maybe he's right, you know? And like, maybe I do owe him a portion of that. Like, and it's kind of like, and if I could maybe help this dude out with that, you know, maybe it's not my money to do. Like, you know, if that's what he thinks I own, maybe that is what I own, you know? And, uh, and I started this process of like trying to track him down and find him and like get him back this money. And I found out that he was homeless now and he was like living, you know, and all before that, he like, he was a photographer, he traveled, he did all this stuff, you know, and like, he then became homeless. And he became, you know, like a, and like a really bad tweaker and was like living in a tent somewhere in Koreatown. And I would kind of like, you know, like, uh, and I have like, and I would really like think about him, like in my morning meditation, I would just like envision him and like, know that I had to make this right somehow, you know, and, uh, and I have this little prayer that a friend taught me, which is like, God put me where I could be useful and I don't need to know what it looks like, you know, and it's quick, it's easy. I could say it throughout the day. And like, when I say that, and when I make that conscious contact and truly believe in it, like these amazing things happen. So I say that prayer one day, I'm leaving work and I don't see him, but I see his brother and I see his brother like right, like in right by my work and I pull over and I was like, dude, what's up? Have you seen, you know, have you seen your brother? And he goes, man, I haven't in like a year, but he just reached out to me and said that he wants to have lunch and I'm waiting for him right here to meet up and have lunch right now with him. And I was like, that's crazy, you know? And um, we met up and we all had lunch together that day. And he was like, man, he's like, I heard you've been doing really well, whatever. And like, and I had the money to pay him in that moment, you know? And I, and I asked his brother, I called his brother after and I go, Hey, you know, I owe him some money and whatever, you know, do you think I like, like I could give it to you to try to help, you know, or whatever. Like, and uh, he goes, dude, he's like, after you left, like we were talking and he was like, wow, I can't believe like Daniel's not like, you know, like whatever, you know, like he didn't say sober, but he was like, he's not f-ing around. He's not messing around. And he's like, that's so cool to see. He goes, maybe you can help like, you know, like be like, you know, the light that he needs to actually try to, you know, like get him sober. And I was like, well, whatever I could do, I'm here to help, you know? And it began this like year and a half long process of like him showing like resurfacing and like his brother giving him a phone or me running into him in Hollywood when somebody stole his backpack and he thinks the Scientologists are after him and like me walking around with this guy for an hour and a half when I have work at 6 a.m. the next morning trying to find his backpack, which is like, there is no backpack, you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, about a week ago, um, I had a friend, uh, oh, uh, he, his brother calls me and he goes, hey, he resurfaced again. And he said, hey, I, I need to get help. Call Daniel, you know, just out of the blue completely, you know, and uh, and we started, we got the ball rolling and like, you know, and his brother's in a position where like he works for a company that's able to like add him as an employee and get him the insurance policy. And I'm able to like make some calls to some friends and like see what place takes that insurance, you know, and and after it all coming together, you know, like I came over there and like it was the, the day had come for us to drive him to treatment and we get everything lined up and I'm sitting there with him and he was like, oh, but I just got to pack my stuff. And it turned from like this, you know, like me showing up and being like, cool, we're going to leave at four to like it'd be nine o'clock at night. And like me being on the phone with the place, like, no, no, we're coming. We're going to be there. You know, I swear we're coming. And uh, we have another mutual friend of ours that uh, that got sober eight months ago. He, he celebrated eight months on that day that like I've seen at meetings and I would run into and he was just like a really, really bad drunk and he worked at this cafe by my old apartment and I would come in and see him and like, you know, and he'd be like, dude, I had a, se- I got a, I had a seizure at work. Like I really need to get help. Can you, you know, and, uh, and I would give him my phone number and be like, whenever anything you need, just call me. And he wouldn't call. And that guy finally got it. He got eight months and I'm, and they were like childhood friends. They did everything together, you know? And, uh, and he calls me out of the blue that day that I'm sitting in the living room 
with my friend and his brother, you know, waiting for him to pack just to see how I'm doing, you know, just to see what's going on. And I tell him, I'm like, dude, you're never going to believe where I am and what's happening right now. And he's like, you know what? I do believe it because every day since this pandemic started, I've been praying that, you know, our friend whose name I'm not going to use here, it's really hard for me to not say his name, you know, but uh, <laughs> you're doing great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's really hard. And then he's like, every day since this pandemic started, I've been praying every morning that he gets help and he reaches out to you when he's ready to get that help, you know? And I'm like, well, you're not going to believe where I am. You know, we talked on the phone and it's like just these like little like serendipitous moments, you know, and just like, like I don't, they're not coincidences. Like there's no way that, you know, like there's like, there's, we're all, ta- I believe that like I tap into something, you know, when I say that little prayer, when I do my little meditation and I write my gratitude list and like read on awakening and all that, like it opens up that channel for whatever is out there to, you know, to talk through me and to like show me where I need to go and show up and what I need, you know, what I need to do. And it's just like, you know, and I have countless like, you know, and it's like that immense could have been me giving the dude 300 bucks and being like, well, I'll see you later, you know, and like, totally, good luck. totally. But it turned into like, you know, like, I mean, a year and a half of like back and forth and back and forth and like me showing up and like when we did he dropped, get into treatment, he got into treatment. We dropped him off the other night, you know, and, uh, and just like seeing his brother and seeing that relief and like, you know, his brother who's like this guy who I've known since I was 20, you know, and like has always just been like a, like a man that I've looked up to just seeing him like break down in tears, like when we were walking away and just like being so grateful and who knows what's going to happen, you know, who knows what that journey entails for him, you know, but to get to show up for him, to get to show up for his brother and his family and like that everything just lined up, like, you know, like, like I'm here to help, you know, and when he, you know, if God willing, he, fu- he finishes that treatment center, like I'll pick him up from there and take him to the next place, you know, and like whether it's a sober living or take him to a meeting, wherever he, you know, like I get to be that, like, you know, like I've walked this path before him to now be able to show up and be like, Hey, you know what? It's going to be okay. And you got this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's, I, it's interesting that you use the same terminology because I can't tell you how many times I say to people, look, I'm here to help whatever I can do. Like I find myself saying I'm here to help. And I think that once you've gone through something like that, people, you know, at first, I think people judge you for a while until they see that it sticks, right? So until they see that you're going to stick around and then they see the changes, they see the evidence of the work, right? And and people always say like, well, how do I know it's going to work. And like, there's so much evidence. Like we can look around and see the evidence. It's not, it's not a wishing game. It's not me just making this up. Like, look at the evidence. It's there if you look for it and being able to help other people and the, you know, that situation, getting someone that, you know, help over long periods of time. I've been in that um, situation where I've just took the call for years and years and years. And then one day, you know, they knew where to go. And, it's such a, and to see the family, like to see the family have that reaction and the relief, the profound relief that, that something's going to change. It's, it's one of the best feelings I've ever experienced. It's so beautiful. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing like it, you know, there's nothing like it. Like there's nothing like, it's weird how it went from like at first where I was like, Oh, this is like a chore, you know, where like I, there's nothing I would rather do than like be of service to a newcomer. Like, you know, like it's like, literally there is nothing, you know, on this planet where like I, when this whole thing started, 
I like I remember calling my sponsor and being like, "What do you mean we can't go to meetings? Like my primary purpose is to help another. How am I not going to be able to show you know? Yeah, to show up for the new. I'm going to die from this disease before I die from you know whatever else right, is going right. out there. You know? <laughs> right. No, there's truth to that. What has has that been difficult for you? I mean, it's been difficult, but it's like I'm finding new ways to be of service to others. You know, I have like a sponsee that I've never met before. That like literally, I've you know, I mean that like. I like so that somebody like was like, Hey, there's this dude at our meeting. Like, I think you'd be a great sponsor for him. So we started talking and then like, you know, and I'm taking him through the steps without ever seeing the the dude, you know, and like he'll, he'll do his writing and he'll take photos of it and he'll send it over to me and I'll call him and we'll go over it and talk about the spiritual principle attached to that step, you know? And, uh, and it's funny cause I was in a meeting and I saw a dude and I was like, and I texted him, I'm like, wait, is that you? Cause I've never seen the dude's face before, you know, like in a zoom oh, meeting. Funny. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So you're getting the opportunity. Exactly. When you heard people like before you, you know, for those nine years that you were coming in and out and you heard people talk the way that you're talking now about recovery and being of service and all that, like, would you have imagined that you would ever be speaking that way? Never in a million years. You know, never <laughs> Was that like the was that like the nerdiest thing ever? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I used to like, you know, when people would be like, everything I have in my life is a direct result of God in the 12 steps, you know? And like, and I used to be like, oh my God, here we go again, you know? <laughs> and I've literally caught my, you know, and I've shared that where I was like, you know, like I used to get so mad where I would hear people say that. And now I'm like, literally everything I have in my life is a direct result of me finding like finding a connection to a higher power and working the steps and showing and being of service to others like everything there's no doubt in my mind about that you know it's i've found it so painful when like those sayings or those axioms or like all the different stuff and i find myself like there's no other good way to say it so i have to say the like (laughs) tried and true like one day at a time, you know, whatever it is, I'm like, oh God, if I, you know, like just why can't I come up with something else? But it's, you know, it's there because it's the experience of so many of us. And I remember thinking how nerdy and lame people were for talking this way. And the reality is like, it's pretty lame to be, you know, in pain every day, getting sick, getting well, homeless, you know, whatever, like whatever your situation is, gets so bad that you're willing to take whatever whatever the solution is. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and it's like, for me, it gives me a sense of gratitude to have been taken to those depths, you know, and to be like, to have those low, to have those low lows, because like, there hasn't been a day that I've woken up where like, you know, like where I'm not grateful to have the life I have today, you know, and like, and I've, you know, and I've been kicked out of places. I've lost jobs. I've lost best friends. I've been dumped. I've been, you know, like all that stuff has happened to me in sobriety. And the only thing is that's different is my reaction, you know, to all of it. Like I had a car that got totaled by a drunk driver when I had like a, uh, when like I wasn't in the car, it was just parked and I was walking my dog one night and I was like, Hey, that's my car. Why is there a tow truck next to it? I didn't park in the red and I walk up and it's literally like, eight feet away because somebody smashed into it, you know? And I was like, well, that sucks. And I remember calling my sponsor at about a year at the time. I remember calling and like, and that was in the same like month that I lost my job. I was asked to like move out of the place where I was living because the person who I was subletting it from, like just all of a sudden moved back here, like without any notice. And then that happens like the car, you know? And I remember calling my sponsor and being like, 
Chris, I can't, how am I supposed to go out to, you know, to Santa Monica to meet with this sponsee? Like I had my first sponsee and I was like so excited and I would drive out there and meet with him and then I'd go jump in the ocean after we would do step work. And I remember calling me like, how am I supposed to get out there and do this? Like, I can't sponsor this guy anymore. And he was like, well, guess what? You remember the public, that bus that you used to take to get you everywhere? You're going to take that bus to Santa Monica to meet with that sponsee every Monday, just like you used to, because you owe your life to this program and you owe your life. Just like I would meet up with you when I didn't want to meet up with you. He's like, I I wouldn't want to be seen with you in public, but I still met up with you every week. And, um, and I believe that dude. And I, and you know what? And I showed up and I got on that bus and I would show up for my sponsee. You know, I never told him like, you know, he's like, don't tell your sponsee that you don't have a car, you know, tell him you parked a little farther away this time, you know? Cause like, that's not his business, you know? Like you don't want to like, you know, like you're there, you're doing this because you owe this to Alcoholics Anonymous. Cause it was done for you, you know? And I did. And like, I got another job. And I got a little insurance payout from the car that was like way worth way more than that stupid car was worth, you know? And I got another apartment and like everything like time and time again has worked itself out as long as I just show up and do what I'm, what I've been taught to do in the rooms and what I've been taught to do in this program. That's to be of service to another alcoholic. Yeah. It's pretty in- incredible experience. It's hard to believe until you either see it or, or experience it. So you now, what are you doing for work? Are you, you're, you work in the fields, right? I do, yeah. So I worked uh, at that, that treatment center that got shut down or whatever. They had like a record label and I would, uh, which is crazy, you know, like in itself. And uh, so I was like the label manager for this record label. And through that, they were like, hey, can you run groups? Uh, can you run groups like where you do like a music therapy group with like clients that we have here? And I was like, sure, you know, and I started doing that. And then when that place got like shut down, I was out of, that was when I was out of work. And I had a friend be like, hey, well, you have experience like running groups and like being a group facilitator, you know, like maybe you can come and do something like that at my, at my place, you know? So I started doing that. And then I've been, yeah, just kind of kept, you know, like I've, then I had another friend who was like, oh, well, I'm working in a place. It's in Silver Lake. It's way closer to you than that, than that place. Why don't you come, you know, work for us? And I've done that. And I kind of, uh, you know, and like, I go through waves where I like, you know, where like, I, I like either love it. Like a lot of the days I love it. And I love getting to like show up and see like, you know, the effect that it has on people that come in and they're like, why are you so happy today? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. Like there's this thing called AA and I do it. And then it seems to me put a smile on my face. Like I'm never going to do that. And then you see those clients like come in, you know, like you'll see them in a meeting maybe, or like you'll see, you know, and then you see them start to get this thing, you know? And it's like, that's always like super cool. And I've been kind of going back and forth. Like, is this my true purpose? And like, what am I supposed to be doing? You know? And, um, and like, I've incorporated that into like my prayer and meditation to like be shown what my true purpose is. And like, I started getting these like little, like, you know, I've always like been like, I kind of dig fashion and I like, like, you know, like, so I've been picking up little like styling jobs, like assistant styling here and there. And then I started getting like, you know, like I've always had people tell me like, why don't you, you have a good look, like you should be an actor. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And then like the more that I started like doing that, like find my purpose meditation, like, like I have a friend that's a director that's put me in like a few music videos. And I just like did a rap a short film, like right before this whole thing started about like two and a half months ago. And then like just more and more of these opportunities just kind of keep popping up. And it's all just, you know, through like showing up and putting one foot in front of the other and just like truly trusting the process and like not, you know, staying out of the results and not, and like when I don't get something my way, 
I'm okay with it today. I'm like, all right, cool. Then it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a much easier way of life. It really oh, yeah. is. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And we're going to have more in the show notes. We'll have everything for It's All Bad, uh, your podcast. Go check out It's All Bad, all awesome war stories of recovery and getting down and dirty. I love it. And uh, really, really grateful for your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.